This uh, sermon is going to be on Bible authority. So as uh, James and others have made reference, there is, you know, for the year 2020, since we have different men getting up and preaching, there was a list from the elders on different subjects that they felt uh, important to speak on. And I saw this one on there and signed up for it. Now, and I saw this and I signed up for this months, two, three months ago, maybe. And uh, I didn't notice until yesterday that the entry actually only said authority. So maybe I just made an assumption and made it about Bible authority. So I would just say to the elders, if you weren't interested in Bible authority and a different version of authority, just let me know and I can cover that in the future. But I just kind of made that assumption and didn't notice it until yesterday. Thought, you know, that's too late to turn around now. Been getting ready for this one for too long. So we're going to talk about Bible authority. And I'm pretty sure that's what they were intending. When we talk about this subject, we often mention that this is a very important one. Sometimes some go so far as to say there is no more important subject when it comes to misconceptions, when it comes to things that people miss in the religious, particularly the denominational world. And we emphasize that a lot, the necessity of Bible authority, the necessity of everything we do we must have authority for it. And then our next point is, and that source of authority, is the Bible. We've heard many, many sermons, even, even recently, over the years, um, particularly those of us who you know, grew up in the church, um, we've heard this a lot. And we often say we still can't take it for granted. We need to talk about it. But I have to say for myself, over time, um, you know, no matter how many lessons, sermons, classes, uh, conversations that I've been a part of on Bible authority, I'm not going to say they're wrong, but I'm just going to say more often than not, there's just, I've always felt like there's something there's something missing. We're, we're, we're not touching on something that, that we need to touch on. Or there, there's something that we're conveying in a way that seems um, like we could do differently. And I'm not, I'm not singling anyone out here. In fact, in preparation for this, I, I googled the term, you know, Bible authority, establishing Bible authority. I read, I don't know how many articles. Uh, I didn't listen to many full sermons, but just listen to different parts of sermons, um, bulletins, all sorts of things um, in, in preparation for this. And almost without fail, I, I felt the same way about all of them. And I started thinking about, what is it that, that's missing here? What, what is it that we're not talking about? And when I really thought about it, it seemed as if, when we talk about Bible authority, we have this tendency to want to jump straight to the mechanics of it. We have this tendency to just want to talk about command, example, necessary inference. We want to talk about the silence of scriptures and how that permits in some cases and prohibits in other cases. Or sometimes we started off with, you know, every, you know, we have to have authority for everything we do. Well, to us, that makes perfect sense. Uh, the idea of command, example, that makes perfect sense. Because, oh, yeah, how else are you going to figure it out? But is that an assumption to think that people are interested in that? That people say, yeah, we need authority for everything we do. Well, some people, we might say that, like, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean authority for everything I do? And in some cases, in some ways, it's sad. I mean, I want to make that clear. In some cases, it's sad. That we have to go that far to explain that. But when I thought about it some more, it also seemed to me, the way that we often talk about it, who are we talking to? What's our audience here? And when I look at a lot of the examples that are used, it's usually institutional churches, instrumental music, 
Um, there's human organizations, creeds, and it kind of made me wonder, the way that we talk about Bible authority, is it very heavily rooted in the institutional split several decades ago? And is that the context in which we're talking about it? And when you think about it that way, it's like, that makes sense, because you're using terms that might be familiar to these people already. You have a certain base set of assumptions that these people, you already know, yeah, they, they probably more or less agree. Yeah, we've got to have authority somewhere. And they might, they, they would not say always oh, from the Pope or it's from this person or that person. Um, but again, it's all an assumption that makes sense in that group. And certainly it makes sense within this group to kind of train us mentally to, to, to how we should think about authority. So what I would say now, you know, I, I said the vast majority of those things that I read, they just, just didn't strike me as, as the right starting point. Now, I am not going to be so arrogant as to say that all those people got it wrong and I'm going to get it right this morning. Because a lot of those people were much older, wiser men who have experienced a lot more than I have. Uh, and I'm not going to say that I'm getting this right and they're getting it wrong. All I'm going to say for this morning is what I've tried to do is just strip it all the way down to its most core, fundamental concept why Bible authority? What's the point? What's the starting point? And approach this in a way that, you know, maybe it would make sense regardless of who we're talking to, that we could take this approach with an atheist, with an agnostic, Buddhist, fill in the blank, and not just simply people who maybe already, you know, have a certain base set of assumptions. So that's my approach this morning. I hope it will be helpful. Um, and I would just, again, emphasize there is no sole way of approaching the subject. This is just the way that I've chosen to go about it. First off, we, it's important for us to consider various sources of, sources of authority. I mean, as I said, sometimes we jump straight into it and say, we have to have authority for everything that we do. Well, some people have no concept of that. So when it comes to morals and spiritual beliefs, there are various sources of authority. I'd like to talk through a few of those uh, for different groups of people. So first of all, for atheism, there's no purpose or overarching rule. This is all just an accident. You know, there is no authority. I mean, we have different laws that govern to make sure society doesn't just collapse into chaos and those types of things, but we're not here. We're just here. We're just an accident. So there is no overarching purpose or overarching rule. From Buddhism, our guidance comes from within. There's no one outside of us who can... Uh, you know, create these laws and rules, the wisdom, what we need uh, in this life, if we just focus and empty our minds of worldly concerns, we'll find it. It's already in us. Agnostics, I knew I was going to mess that one up. Agnostics, we'll just say that. Agnostics say, just take whatever morals and practices you want from whatever makes sense to you. You like something from Buddhism? Yeah, I like that idea. You, you like something from Christianity? Okay, I'll, I'll have a little bit of that. It's like this big buffet. We'll just, whatever makes sense to us, you know, as long as we're not hurting anybody, whatever, we'll do what we want. To um, religions such as Catholicism, Greek Orthodox, Lutheran, defer to your spiritual leaders. You know, I'm not responsible if I'm a Catholic or a Greek Orthodox, I'm not responsible for knowing uh, exactly what I believe. There's a priest that takes care of that. There's a pope that takes care of that. I'll dig into this a little bit. I'm not saying this out of mockery, but that's what they believe. Just, you know, hey, you don't have to worry about it. Your priest has got you covered. And finally, other Protestant denominations, just go with what God puts in your heart. All roads lead to heaven. Now, they may generally, I mean, not generally, they do. They believe in the Bible 
and the necessity of it, but by and large, you don't have to know it that well. Um, as long as you've accepted Jesus into your heart, and as long as you're convicted, it'll work out fine. We can just we can disagree on various points. Now, <clears throat> when we look at this list, I, I mean, some of this sounds crazy to us, and we think that sounds horrible. And look at the atheism. We're just an accident. What, what do you mean? <laughs> How pointless would life be if we're just an accident? Guidance coming from within. I know my life. I know how messed up I can be. Don't tell me that I can make it right myself. Agnostic, what do you mean? I use this term spiritual buffet, just like pick and choose. That sounds chaotic. Catholicism, I mean, not taking accountability for your own beliefs, looking to others and, and expecting them to define for you what you believe. I mean, a couple of examples of this. I mean, many of us over the years have gone door knocking. I'm sure we've heard this one before. Hey, do you want to study the Bible? No, I'm Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're not responsible for that. I mean, again, we can make fun of that, but that, that's just the reality. That's the thought process. It makes no sense to us. I have a co-worker. She's a uh, Greek Orthodox. Really like, respect her in many ways. We agree on a lot of things in terms of the Bible. I don't even remember what the subject was, but uh, and I think it was something I agreed with her on. But when we were talking about it, she's like... Um, Oh, how did she phrase it? It was essentially, um, I don't have to worry about that. My priest says it's this, and he's a lot closer to God than I am. And I kind of reacted internally. I'm just like, what? But then I checked myself and thought, you know, that's that's what they believe. Not responsible for it. Priest has got me covered. And then finally, go with what God puts in your heart. I mean, we know how crazy that can get and chaotic that can get. And so to us, we look at that and go, this is not good. This is a free for all. But that's our perspective. Let's think through each of these groups again. If you're an atheist, isn't it a comforting thought to say, I'm not responsible. As long as I'm not hurting anybody, whatever. Leave me alone. Stop talking about it. If I'm a Buddhist, I can just meditate and realize, hey, no matter what, if I'm on an island by myself, I can figure this out. Agnostic, you know, do whatever you want to do. I mean, yeah, that'd be great to just pick and choose what feels right to you. It would be great in many ways to feel comfortable saying, my priest has got me covered. My pope has got me covered. All i got to do is go and say and, and confess and do this and do that. I'm good. I've checked out, right? Or to say, all roads lead to heaven. It would be comforting to say that. And if we were all honest with ourselves, any one of these... That actually sounds pretty good, doesn't it? To not have to be responsible. To not have to worry about authority. And so there's one other point here that I've not gotten to. But when this is what we're combating, let's just be very transparent. This is what we're combating. This very lulled comfort. Of, I don't have to worry about authority. Either there is no such thing, or it doesn't matter, or somebody else has it covered for me. And so if we're going to combat this, we need to do so in a very thoughtful way, in a way that actually is appealing, in a way that actually convinces people, look, I know you feel like it's great to just defer to a priest, but wouldn't it be better if you could, you know, know it yourself, right? So if we're going to do it, we have to be very nuanced. And I'm going to show you a point here. This can't be what it is. 
us will follow a 2,000 year old book. Right? I mean, that's what we're showing up saying. You know, you think you don't have to worry about it. You think your priest has you covered. You think God has you covered. We're showing up saying, hey, there's a book right here that's several, you know, almost 2,000 pages long and it's 2,000 years old. Read that. Understand that and you'll, you'll be covered. That is terrifying to a lot of people, especially because they've been hearing all, all throughout the years. I've heard that. You've all probably heard this one. Oh, it's a translation of a translation of a translation and on and on and on. How can you possibly understand that? You've got entire colleges dedicated to the study. They can't agree on it. You've got hundreds, thousands of denominations of religions. They can't agree on it. And you're telling me, read this 2,000-year-old book, <laughs> and that's where I'm supposed to get my authority? These people thought the earth was flat. We're going to listen to them, right? So some of the stuff I'm going to say, is not, I don't disagree with it. I mean, and it's, and it's core, distilling it all the way down. Yeah, that's what we're saying. Follow a book that's 2,000 years old. But again, we can't just say it in that way. We need to be very thoughtful about it. And here's an example of why, why I, I say that. How many of you heard, have you heard of the Book of Truth? This was a book that was found in Jerusalem in the year 432 A.D. This book tells of many astonishing and miraculous events. It talks about a prophetess who delivered messages of salvation from God. Followers of the prophetess healed the sick and even raised the dead. It also describes how thousands, thousands of people's lives were changed by their devotion to this prophetess. Followers of this book claim to know it's the truth because the book makes many claims of being inspired by God. It's not just a, a writing of a, of a man or woman, woman in this case, it's inspired by God. Additionally, no known discrepancies have been found within this book. It references many historical events and it even seems to accurately predict future events. The Book of Truth even seems to describe scientific truths long before they were discovered by modern science. This is the Book of Truth, like I said, discovered back in, uh, uh, in 432 A.D. Now let me ask you a question. If I had a copy of this book right now and I were to hold it up and say, who here wants to follow, read this book and follow it? Do we have any takers today? Anyone interested in following the prophetess described in the Book of Truth? I don't see anyone. I don't usually ask for audience participation, but maybe somebody would be comfortable enough to answer this question. Why not? Why would, if I had that book on hand right now, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you follow it? Galatians chapter 1. Okay, Galatians chapter 1. Any other thoughts on why you wouldn't follow it? I do agree with that, by the way. Well, there's problems with this book of truth. First of all, never heard of it. <laughs> never heard of this book, or the people, or the events contained within it. So why would we follow a book we've never even heard of? Secondly, just because a book claims to be inspired doesn't make it so. So I told you, hey, this book's inspired. It wasn't just written by a man or a woman. The Book of Mormon is a perfect example of that. I mean, you read that, it claims all over. This is inspired. If you contradict it, your, it's your problem, not ours. If you find contradictions, it's your problem, not ours. I mean, it covers itself pretty well in terms of making a, a, a pretty bulletproof case for don't, don't dispute us, we've got it. Um, so yeah, just because a book claims to be inspired doesn't make it so. A book accurately referencing historical events or scientific truths doesn't mean the rest of it is true. So even again, if I had this book of truth uh, discovered in Jerusalem in 432 and it described all these historical events, 
Well, that doesn't mean you believe the rest of the book, right? The Quran, not necessarily scientific, but it describes some historical events. It talks about Alexander the Great um, and other things that actually happened, but I don't believe any of us are following the Quran. And additionally, we've never spoken to anyone whose life has been changed by this book, right? Now, there's an obvious point here. The book of truth, there's no such thing. I just made it up. It's fictional. But if I were to present it to you as truth, and I was up here talking about it, these are some of the concerns you would have. You'd say, I've never heard of this. And just because it makes these claims doesn't make it so. I've never talked to a soul that's been changed by this book. Well, some of you know where I'm going here, I think. Let's look at this again. Does any of this look familiar? Any of the thought process seem familiar? How about that? Basically, if you wonder why I did, I just took the Book of Truth, replaced it with the Bible, and so on. Took the prophets, replaced it with the Son of God. Now, I want to be clear. These things are true. I'm not disputing that whatsoever. I'm not saying these things are not true. But what I'm saying is, we look at that and go, yeah, that's right. That makes sense. But just like you sat there a minute ago and said, Book of Truth, what are you talking about? Never heard of it. Never talked to anyone. Just because it says it's inspired doesn't make it so. Just because it talks about historical events doesn't mean the rest of it's true. We look at this and go, yeah, well, other people outside the church have, this, have the same reaction to this as you just had to the Book of Truth. So, again... I hope I've illustrated now, we've got to dig deeper than this. We've got to dig deeper than just saying these familiar talking points that we agree with, that make sense to us, but when we present it to outsiders, they go, what are you talking about? So now that I've kind of demonstrated why some of the, we'll get to others later, but I've demonstrated some of the, the errors that we may make, in trying to convince people that the Bible is where we should get our source of authority, that the Bible is accurate and so on and so forth and what we should follow. Now that I've talked about some of that, let's talk about maybe how should we then talk about the Bible. And the most fundamental question that we're answering for people, and I, I want to make this clear, this isn't really about you know just Bible authority. It's not just that term. It, really what we're talking about, why follow the Bible? You know, what I said earlier is 2,000-year-old book. Why follow that relative to just saying, my priest has got me covered? There are no rules. And, and, and continue on, right? Why follow the Bible? The first and most fundamental thing of why we follow the Bible is because we've heard of Jesus, we've heard of who he is, and of his power to transform us. And we've seen it. So back to the point I made earlier, um, never spoken to anyone whose life was changed by this book. Well, the Bible, that's not true. We have. We know of this. An example of what I mean is in Acts chapter 26. We're not going to read all of this. Um, Acts chapter 26. This is well after Paul's conversion. He's been arrested. The Jews are angry, like always, um, are angry. Uh, now he's gone before King Agrippa and is giving his account of why he's there and what's going on. And what does he do? He just tells his story. He says, look, everyone knows this. Everyone knows where I came from, how I used to behave, how zealous I was in persecuting the Christians. And he then tells his conversion story and says, this happened to me on the way to Damascus. We will begin reading in verse 19, though. He says, therefore, after he's explained all of this, he says, therefore, O King Agrippa, <coughs> I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, 
declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, for I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You notice what Paul did here. In trying to convince these people that God is worth following, that the scriptures are worth believing, he started with himself and said, here's my story. Here's where I was. Here's who I used to be. Here's who I am today. Here's how I know that to be true. Now, sometimes we look at this idea, uh, what is it, testimonial. I guess that's the way that it's often put in many denominations, testimonial. And we, we frown upon that and say, no, you go to the Bible, that's the source of truth. Well, Paul did reference that. He said that I'm, um, he talks about, no, I'm going to struggle to find it now. Uh, oh, he says uh, there in verse 22, I'm saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. So he, he does mention the scriptures. But by and large, he's saying, look at how God has transformed me, and I know this to be true. That's actually the starting point. The starting point can't be, turn to this passage. The starting point has to be, prove it. Prove that, it's, that it works. Here's an example of that. If you showed up to somebody... And you're like, all you're just in a just a complete mess. And everybody can look at you and go, man, a man or woman is miserable. You're drunk. You're slurring your speech. You're acting out of your mind, as as King Agrippa uh, Festus said here. And you talk to this person, hey, I want to talk to you about the Bible. Become a Christian. No, why not? Because they don't see evidence of it. They see somebody that needs to get their life in order. So that's usually should be the starting point is to talk about here's why it works. Because we've heard of Jesus, we know who he is, and we know his power to transform us. And so because of that, we want to follow Jesus. And so when we say we want to follow Jesus, the question would then be how? And what I'm going to show you is, is actually very, very simple. So let's just unplug for a moment and just, you know, we're not talking about Jesus anymore. We're just talking about any old teacher, anybody. You've heard about this great weight loss program or this great uh, workout program or this great art thing, whatever, this great teacher. And you've heard enough about it. Man, they, they, they went through that program. They lost a lot of weight or they got a lot stronger or they're much better at painting now, much better at cooking now. I want to do that. Well, how would you start down that road? Well, first of all, if it's possible, I think you'd want to talk to that person. And so, in this case, well, we, we can't do that. We can't go and sit down and talk to Jesus in the temple like others did. 
Okay, well, again, we're talking about Jesus, but just other ideas here too. All right, well, if we can't talk to this teacher directly, can we find any writings, you know, any videos, any podcasts, whatever? Well, if we have no writings from this person, uh, just as we have with Jesus, I mean, we have recorded things, but we don't have you know, the book of Jesus that he sat down and wrote with his own hands. What would we then do next? Well, we'd probably want to talk to people who talk to this teacher, talk to people who talk to Jesus, or read materials of people that had sat with this teacher, sat with Jesus. And that we can do. We do have writings from those who follow Jesus. Now, I want to insert something here. There's, there's definitely a major, you know, if I were literally presenting to a bunch of atheists or agnostics, there's a big caveat right here. I would then need to divert here and say, let's talk about that. How do we know that these writings came from these men? I might do that in a later sermon, but we can't be here all morning. <laughs> um, but I would say we would probably want to go about proving that. But just for the sake of this audience, I'll, let's allow that assumption. We do have writings from those who follow Jesus. So let's take a look at those. Let's look at Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right here is where Jesus outlines it all. He describes his authority. He says, all authority has been given to me. And this is a literal statement he made. So again, hooking back into this idea, people who were there wrote this down, or talked to people later and wrote this down. Jesus said, we've heard about his power to transform, we've heard about the great miracles, all these things that he's able to do, and now he's saying, all authority has been given to me. He then gives directions for how to be saved. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them. And he tells his disciples, go and do that. So Jesus made it clear that was his mechanism for teaching. He was going to ascend to heaven, but he left the mission to other people to continue that message so that they could understand, even though they weren't there present, seeing these things, they knew how to believe it. And his disciples did just that. Peter, uh, very literally in Acts chapter 2, he was the first one that got up and gave the sermon on Pentecost, telling people what to do. He wrote First and Second Peter. John, he wrote the Gospel of John. First, Second, Third John in Revelation. And then Paul, I didn't write it all, he just wrote most of, the, most of the New Testament. Just those three men who did, uh, in the case of Peter and John, lived day to day, had meals with him, sat with him, heard him, observed him. Paul, a little bit different experience, but he personally experienced and spent time with Jesus as well. These three men, I mean, obviously there's other books, but just these three men alone, they cover the vast majority of the New Testament. So if we've heard about Jesus and we want to follow him, let's think about this. Let's get people to think about that. These are people that walked with him. These are people that saw it firsthand, and as I said, if we had time, we could try and prove that these documents are legitimate. That's why we follow the Bible, is because we see these things and we see these men who carried on the message. And so the ultimate, there's one more slide after this one, but the ultimate answer, why do we follow the Bible? Because when we read the Bible, we're reading a book that was inspired by the teachings of the Son of God. Now, 
I was very careful in, in phrasing this. We've not talked about inspiration yet, and we're, we're not really going to. Inspiration, um, <laughs> that's a subject that we, we jump to a lot. But guess what? We can't even agree oftentimes exactly what does inspiration mean? Exactly how was the book of John inspired? And so I'm not trying to say we don't talk about inspiration. We, we need to get to that point. We do need to talk about that on some level. But again, when we're just thinking just basic reasoning here, right? Never minding inspiration. We just, we've heard about Jesus. We want to follow him. We want to convince people to follow him. We talk to him about this. You're reading a book that was inspired by the teachings of the Son of God, and a perfect example of that is the book of Luke. Why does the book of Luke even exist? Because a man by the name of Theophilus heard some stuff, wanted to know, is this true? And then Luke went and gathered as much information as he could, as many first-hand witnesses as he could, to understand what happened here. Is this legitimate or not? We've probably all heard this story, but Luke and Acts, I mean, are often upheld as highly regarded, uh, regardless of whether people believe in Jesus or Christianity, but just the accuracy which, with which he documents these things. The, speci the specific nature, if he describes the voyages, being on the ship, all those things, he was a historian. The funny thing is he probably didn't know it. <laughs> he probably didn't know we'd still be talking about him 2,000 years later today. But again, this is the perfect example of this. Of Again, inspiration is important, but when we struggle with it ourselves sometimes, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole talking to new believers. We just got to say again, if you're interested in following Jesus, we can show he's transformed people. Here's a book right here of somebody that's doing this very same methodology. I've heard it's true. Let's go find out. That's what Luke did. So now we've talked about why to follow the Bible. One final slide. This is where we're going to get into, not, not super mechanical, but this is where we get to where I said sometimes we start, well, this is where we're going to end today. How do we follow the Bible? What does it mean to say, okay, you've got me. I believe in Jesus now. I believe, you know, all these other things. I believe the Bible is where to start with because these men, whether, wherever we may be on inspiration, we know they were there, they saw, they observed, they heard, and we believe the message. We should be paying attention to the Bible. How do we do that? The first, the most important one, and this is true for all of us, whether we're Christian or not, we have to respect Jesus' authority by setting aside our preconceived ideas. We just got done reading a few moments ago, all authority has been given on me on heaven and on earth. That's our starting point. For anything, we can't just say, oh, oh well, at this point I've heard, you know, my pastor said this, or my preacher said this, or my elder said this, or the Pope said this, or this inspirational speaker said that. We take all of that and throw it out. And we say, what does Jesus say? What do his teachings say? And we get rid of all of our preconceived ideas. And we then seek to learn. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. So what I said at the beginning, um, you know, we're saying, you know, follow a 2,000-year-old book. We have to really get people on board with this. You know, we have, to, we have to remind people, you know, once you're following Jesus, once you're saying, I'm going to, yes, all authority is his, you forfeit the right to just sit on the sidelines. You forfeit the right to just say, oh, well, I'll let somebody else call me. You then have to be in it yourself. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now these Jews were no, more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. These people took it upon themselves. They knew. They heard the message and knew 
I've got to get busy. I need to read. I need to search and examine, are these things so? We remove the mindset of fill in the blank, my preacher, my elder, pastor, priest, whoever tells us, and we take the responsibility, I'm going to follow Jesus, so I want to know directly, what does he say? I want to know directly, what do his scriptures teach? And then we have to be committed. We're going to find some stuff in there. We're going to find some commandments. And we have to follow them. John chapter 14, verse 15. John chapter 14, 15, Jesus says it very simply. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A lot of people know that first part. A lot of people don't know that second part. A lot of people have been told, Jesus loves you. You're safe. You're covered. Jesus loves you. And some from the more cynical perspective, oh, Jesus loves me. And people on the outside, oh, you're a hypocrite. You're, you're this, you're that. I'm good. I'm fine. Right? We have to really be committed to this. We're going to follow Jesus' commandments. And we're going to find some things we don't like. Again, Christian or non-Christian, we're going to find things we don't like. But we have to do them. I thought about going through different examples here, but again, if we're honest with ourselves, there's some commandments in there. If it were up to me, I'd, I'd pass on it. But it's not about me. It's about Jesus' authority. And so we follow his commandments. And we follow the commandments of those to whom he delegated authority. We talked about this a few minutes ago. Paul very uh, briefly sums it up in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1, um, where he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You know, Paul wasn't saying, look at me, look how cool I am. He's saying, look, I'm imitating Jesus. Do likewise. Look at me and see how I'm imitating Jesus. Because again, he knew Jesus. Back to this whole idea, you want to follow somebody that's a great teacher? You can't talk to that person directly, talk to the people that did. Well, Paul's one of those people. Follow his example. In summary, and we'll talk a couple more examples before we wrap up, but that's kind of it. You know, once we're convicted that this is where we need to spend our time, then we are convicted, we seek to learn, and we're going to follow whatever commandments show up, whether they come from Jesus or whether they come from his disciples. But a final note here. Let's not overcomplicate or codify this. I'll explain what I mean by codify this. Sometimes when we talk about command, example, and necessary emphasis, you can almost see that the capital, when we're saying it, capital C, command, capital E, example. It's almost like we're codifying this idea of this is how. There's two problems with that. One, that's how to, to people from denominations or people from other places, that sounds very familiar. Oh, oh, that, that's like, the, you know, I used to hear about... Um, I'm going to fail to come up with an example right now, but, you know, the different terms that were in their creed book, oh, this is the new term. We've replaced it with that. Now it's command, example, and necessary inference. Here's the thing. I'm not saying we don't follow that idea, but that's just, that's just how we learn in all aspects of life. Command, example, and necessary inference, that's not a, a biblical thing. That's a life thing of how we follow authority. When I think back to my very first job as a cashier in high school, I showed up, the Lord commanded me a few things. Here's the training book. Do this, don't do this, do that, don't do that. And then my first day, example. Okay, you're going to be working with this guy over here. He's going to show you how to do it. And interestingly enough, you're probably in those positions. You quickly learn, oh, this person isn't doing it right. <laughs> they didn't read that book that I just got done reading. We follow their example. And then necessary inference. You know what? I don't remember anyone ever telling me that when I left for the day, I couldn't take the money with me. I don't remember anyone ever saying that. 
That was kind of implied, though, right? <laughs> I never tried that out. I just kind of, it was necessarily inferred by my job that I just didn't take the money home with me, right? And we could go on with many other examples. These are just methods of learning in life. And so we just talk about it in that way. We don't have to get super formal about it. We don't have to get super uh, definitive about it. It's just, this is how we learn as human beings. And so whenever people say, you know, that, that's not to say that when we talk to people, they won't contradict it. Oh, well, my priest said this, or, or, or so-and-so said that. Well, point them back to it and say, okay, remember, who are we following here? We're following Jesus. What can we learn from Jesus? We don't necessarily have to jump straight into, well, where's the command, or where's the example, or where's the necessary inference for that, because that, that, that loses people, right? So it's just, that's just the method of learning. Secondly, the silence with Scripture is just that. It's silence. We get ourselves into all sorts of trouble when we want to go into prohibitive silence and permissive silence and, oh, well, what about church buildings? Oh, hold on, that's, that's an expedient. And we throw out all these terms, right? Now, we're going to have to cross that bridge eventually, right? But I would just say, you know, what I mentioned earlier, looking at all the different ways we talk about different subjects, it felt like we get overly mechanical and those types of things. To me, it felt like a lot of the stuff I saw, when it comes to silence of Scripture, we talk about it so frequently because we've got an axe to grind. It's usually, oh, the Bible is silent on instrumental music, and we're going to harp on that. Or we've got an axe to grind in the other way. Oh, we've heard people that condemn us for having a church building, so permissive silence and expedience, and we're going to get talk in, in convoluted ways about that. Again, we've got to cover, we have to have our answers ready there, but I would just say when we're talking to people about authority and whatnot, silence is just that, silence. And we shouldn't spend all our time talking about interpreting silence. We should talk about, well, what, what is it not silent on? What, is it, what does it actually say? We're going to spend a lot of time on that before we ever even have to sit down and talk about the silence part. So let's just recognize that's all it is. And finally, when I thought about summarizing our thinking on this and how we convey it to others, uh, I came uh, across 1 Peter chapter 4, <coughs> excuse me, verse 10 through 11. This will be the final passage. Uh, I told Megan I wasn't sure how long this was going to be. I was like, yeah, I only have like five passages. <laughs> I knew it was going to take a little bit. So I know we're going a little bit over, but we are on our final passage now. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 through 11. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To me, this passage sums up what it means to respect that Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth and what our responsibility should be in return. When we speak, what do we speak as? Not our opinions, not our ideas, not somebody else's opinion, someone else's ideas, but as the oracles of God, as the things that are written. And as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Not the strength that we've come up with ourselves, not the ideas of service that we've created ourselves because it looks good, sounds good, or feels good, but because it came from God. Why? So that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus because glory and dominion are his forever and ever. To me, that sums it all up. Everything that we speak 
oracles of God. Everything that we do is through the strength that God supplies, not what we've come up with ourselves. So in conclusion, Bible authority is a very necessary subject. Uh, I've talked about it in a few different ways this morning. As I said, I'm not arrogant enough to say that this is the right way and all the other ways have been wrong. But I hope that maybe we've been able to think about it a little bit differently this morning, maybe break it down to a more fundamental component um, before jumping into the mechanics. Um, because again, my, my thought here was <clears throat> thinking if, if right there in that pew was my atheist friend from, that I work with at Coke, or my agnostic friend from Humana, or my Greek Orthodox friend, or my many direct family members who are Baptist or Methodist or these types of things down in, in Georgia. I'm, I'm just trying to think, if I were talking to them, where would I start? Now, with those, that last group, I'd maybe start slightly different, but either way, I mean, this is roughly how I believe I would talk about it with these people. And I hope that the things that I've done maybe have, it certainly, I believe, and we'll see how it goes when I try this out with, with these same people, um, I feel like I'm a little bit more equipped uh, to talk about Bible authority from a very fundamental standpoint. But for us, it doesn't do us any good to talk about it if we're not following it ourselves. So if you're not a Christian, if you've not gone down, uh, begun that path of being transformed, following Jesus, being baptized and raised anew, then we're wasting our time here. <laughs> Make that change. And if you have, and you're no longer respecting the authority of Jesus. Now you're, you're doing what you want to do. Be honest about that. Be honest about that. And accept that we have to follow him. And there's commands, again, let's be honest, some of them are hard. Um, now, overall, he does say my commands are not burdensome, but some of them are a little harder than others by each individual. That's, that's what Jesus expects of us. And so if you need help on that front, uh, then come as we stand and as we sing together.